We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. This is part 34. We're approaching the end of chapter 9. You do the math. Tonight we'll be in the book of Revelation. There'll be study notes for everybody. The title this morning is The Power of the Cross Beyond Its Own Moment in Time. The Power of the Cross Beyond Its Own Moment in Time. And the text is Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. Two verses that we're going to look at. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And if you're reading those, that sentence and you're thinking, what in the world is that about? We're going to get to that. 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands... Which are, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, from your word this day to, to know you more deeply, to delight in you more passionately, and to serve you with our lives more faithfully. We ask it through the only name by whom we have access to the throne of grace, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen. The opening word in today's text is translated in the ESV as that old English word, thus. We don't use that much anymore. Thus, it was necessary, 23. Think of thus as kind of a summation word. It means our writer is forming a conclusion based on something said earlier. And, and the conclusion he's about to reach is, is based on his description just two verses earlier of the purification of all those places and instruments of sacrifice in the holy place and the holy of holies under the old covenant. Look at these words, 21 and 22. And in the same way he, this is the high priest, in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Now, what our writer doesn't explain in those two verses is why these inanimate objects could possibly need purifying. It's, it's really weird. I mean, is he really asking us to believe that a tent or a pan or a knife or a candlestick... Is he asking us to believe that those things can be um, morally wicked in and of themselves? And the answer, I think, is, is no. Our writer is neither naive nor is he suspicious. 
But all those things, all those implements for sacrifice and the tent and the furnishings, all of those things were used by sinful people. I think that's his point. All of those things were used by idolaters, they were used by adulterers, they were used by Sabbath breakers, they were used by thieves, they were used by liars, they were used by ignorers of God. At the very best of times, all those old covenant instruments of sacrifice, they were all used by covenant breakers. They were all used by nothing but covenant breakers. Now, what we have to do this morning is the mental work of digging out the meaning of our writer's words in today's text. So try and keep all those things in mind as we open up our first point. Number one, the cleansing of these Old Testament, these Old Covenant copies, that's what the writer calls them, The cleansing of them is designed to teach the church saving access to divine grace is only possible through the sacrifice of Christ. That's what I get in that 23rd verse. Thus, so in the same way or the same reasoning being applied, it was necessary for the copies, that's what we were just talking about, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But, but the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these. So the these is, is these old covenant sacrifices that purified the copies. Remember, All these sacrifices and worship procedures were were commanded by God himself. They were his idea. And yet, embedded embedded in the procedures themselves in the Old Covenant was was the reminder that, that the sinners engaged in this Old Covenant worship weren't really cleansed by it. Do you see what's being described in our text? It's it's profoundly important and it's easily missed. Our text is embarrassingly blunt. Rather than the worshiper, under the old covenant, rather than the worshiper being made actually clean, rather than that, the places, the tools of worship became symbolically contaminated by the sinfulness of the worshipers. That's why all those things had to be cleansed with blood. Not the people. All those things that they used in their worship. So so what is God teaching in these kind of superstitious looking old covenant rituals? What's going on? And God is graciously laying the early foundation of understanding of this. Our best efforts... Without Christ and his shed blood, our best efforts in religious devotion are stained with our own innate sinfulness. Not 
the bad things we do, the very best things we can do. In other words, in other words we, can't, we can't step outside of our own sinfulness when we make our approach to God. We don't have that in us. Our very best, our Sunday best efforts to please a holy God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about religious devotion that excludes, minimizes, circumvents. It's very common today. Circumvents the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And he says, apart from Christ's sacrifice and trusting and understanding and relying on that, we fill up our religious journey with our own indelible sinfulness. Everybody on every religious journey. Apart from Christ, we can't step outside of our own sinful selves. I think, I think you'll agree that this text kind of smacks each one of us with a choice this nice Sunday morning at Cedarview Community Church in this church service. This text is is bluntly stating that our approach to God must be exclusively Christ-centered. This is is too religiously countercultural, just to kind of nod and smile through. Believing this text sets you against the crowd and marks you as a religious bigot. Don't hear it lightly. Think it all the way through. It's texts like these that would make our Lord say, count the cost. Figure this out. Now, for the second half of the verse, which is actually more difficult than the part we just studied. Point number two. Only the sacrificial death of Christ can equip believers to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. To enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. Let me do 9.23 again. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's, that's the, the tent, the altar, the washings, those things, the copies, it was necessary for those to be purified. We just looked at that. Then he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's surprising, I think. It's surprising to see our writer describe the purifying of the heavenly things themselves. Don't you think? Why why should they need to be purified? We we wouldn't think that it, it could be necessary. What is this about? And I think our writer means for us to see the the contrast between the external outward cleansing of the objects used in the old covenant and the kind of internal spiritual purifying offered through the sacrifice of Christ. Let, let Let me try and explain. Our writer makes clear that it is 10.4. 10.4. Hebrews 10.4. Just think of 10.4 like Roger 10.4. He makes it clear it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's right there in your Bible. 
So why do it? Well, there was a kind, there was a kind of cleansing divinely granted whereby sinners were sinners were treated as though those sacrifices actually changed the sinner. But they never did. They were all shadows, the text says. Hello. Okay, just anybody else, would you turn off your cell phone, anything you got now, just shut her down. These were all shadows, our writer says, of the real cleansing to come in Christ. But in Christ and his sacrifice, spiritual changes. Heavenly is the word used. They're not only pictured, but they're accomplished. So so only the sacrifice of Christ establishes the kind of ongoing inner transformation and renewal that, that could never be touched by any Old Testament sacrifice. This, this is the process our writer was talking about earlier in, in 13 and 14 of chapter 9. He says, for if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, we talked about that, Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. See, it's outside, outward. How much, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, this is a spiritual process now, offered himself without blemish to God, purify what? Our flesh? No, our conscience. From dead works to serve the living God. But remember the way I worded that second point. What I said there was, only the sacrificial death of Christ can equip believers to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. And and what what I wanted to stress in the wording of that point is, is that there is, there's no natural affinity between my inward nature and the kingdom of God. In myself. There's no natural affinity between my inward nature and the kingdom of God. Nothing nothing in my natural nature inclines me toward loving God or inclines me to delighting in God. And until I grasp this, I don't think I will ever treasure the power of the work of Christ on the cross. There's so much more than just forgiveness provided in his sacrifice. In my own natural condition, there is nothing about the things of God that I can make myself find inviting. Did you get that? I am not suited to them in my natural condition. And they are not suited to me. I will never be pleased with them, nor consider myself blessed by them. It's... Actually, it's exactly what Paul was saying in Titus 1.15. To, to the pure, the spiritually renewed. All things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving. So defiled and then unbelieving kind of describes it 
more what he's talking about. Unbelievers. So to the pure, all things are pure, delightful, blessed, desirable. To the defiled and unbelieving, see that? Nothing's pure. But both their minds and their consciences, our writer in Hebrews is going to talk about the cleansing of the conscience. Their minds and their consciences are are defiled. Don't miss the idea. To the pure, all things are pure. This isn't a verse teaching beauty is in the eye of the beholder. This is a verse describing the change that takes place through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's describing the, the inward difference between the unbelieving and those who are made pure through Christ. And he says the unbelieving can't find beauty in pure things, in godly things. And our writer in Hebrews is restating nothing but the same idea. The sacrifice of Christ can purify heavenly things. So now, laying that foundation, we're in a better position. We're in a better position to reread these words and see what's being said. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, it doesn't get inside. It's just, it's just on your skin. It's on you. Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. What that means is these people, as they were defiled, would be outside the camp. They couldn't come into even the outer court of the tabernacle. They couldn't have sacrifice. They were defiled. But they would go through this procedure, and then they could come. They'd be treated as clean. They could come in. They could worship with the people. They could be inside the community of the people. But that was it. It's it's the much more now. Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Three. The power of Christ's sacrifice continues long after its own moment in time. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things. But into heaven itself, that time word, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So there are two conclusions our writer wants drawn from this verse. He says, now to appear, let me clean that up, now to appear in the presence of God. So there's a location. Let me urge you to think about this a little differently. The fact that our writer locates our Lord so specifically, it does just seem kind of natural to our religious ears Jesus said he went to prepare a place for us. They saw him ascend, so heaven, Jesus is there. We've all grown up with that concept. But I I think our writer has something in addition in mind 
Something more shocking that we're actually meant to consider. I think the only reason we're so comfortable with the incarnate Son in the presence of God is we don't usually appreciate the depths of Christ's identification with sinful humanity. I mean, this is the one of whom the Apostle Paul said he was, he was, he was made to be sin. Who knew no sin. I don't even know what to do with that. Like, that's just, that's a sentence that's too, too big for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin. I heard, I heard an old preacher a long time ago, he's long gone now. He used to be the district superintendent of Montana, Assemblies of God, Bob Brandt, and, he, and he, he, he made this statement. I don't know what kind of a theologian he was. It was when we were in Trinity, renting the building for that year, he spoke one Sunday morning, and he made this comment. He said this, I was sitting at the front, and I thought, what, what, wow. He said, Jesus became everything God hates on the cross. I'd never heard it said like that before. It's maybe why the only time Jesus, the only time recorded in the whole Bible where Jesus prays and doesn't call God Father, have you noticed that? Is on the cross. My, My God. My God. So, so the depths, my point is the depths to which he came all the way down. Isaiah 53, 6. And the Lord, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Pick whatever bad thing you've watched in the news this week. Pick whatever event you find going on globally that you find offensive and horrific. Pick whatever kind of perversion, dishonesty, violence. Pick it all. And you've got little slices. And then it says, but God took all of this and laid it on him. Now don't dodge this really hard question. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Can we come to God on our own with all of our sin? Not a trick question. Apart from Christ? No. How, how would one who became the sum total of all the combined sin and filth of fallen humanity, how does one like that enter into the presence of heaven and the very throne of God? I say don't dodge that question because there's, there's great hope found in answering it. We should ask that question. The fact that our writer places this loving sin-bearer at the right hand of a holy father God, it should force us to ask, well, where did all that sin go? It was mine. It was laid on him. He's now at the right hand of the holy God, did God just ignore all those sins in the throne room? Not, not likely. No. We're, we're meant to see that those sins 
my sins are, are gone. They're gone. In, in precisely the opposite fashion of those old covenant sacrifices, Hebrews 10, 4, that couldn't, could not remove sin, our writer is making a clear case that Christ's sacrifice put away sin. You see it in 9.26? For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. We're going to look at this next week. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, the end of the ages, to what? Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I believe this is something that the early church prized. Most of them Jewish in the early stages, coming out of this old covenant sacrificial system. You see John re-echoing these same words as though, as though it was just a constant theme of remembrance and, and celebration in 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away, take away sins. I said there were two conclusions our writer wanted drawn from verse 24. For Christ has entered into the holy places, not made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the first was, into heaven itself. He removes sin. It's gone. Now to the second conclusion. The power of Christ's sacrifice continues beyond its own moment in time. It's in that 24th verse. I won't pull it up again. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There's a theme. We'll get to it next week. Our writer will develop more fully in the remaining verses of this chapter. But he just kind of lifts the lid off it here. Now to appear. What does that mean? When is now? Seems like a silly question. Now means there there are no excluded moments in now. There is no moment in time. There is no situation in your life. There is no moment of failure or sin for which it can be said, right now his priestly ministry is not effective on your behalf. Never can that be said. When is his ministry effective? When this letter was written, now. As we sit here this morning, now. Right now. Rejoice in happy hope with this truth. That whenever a humble heart draws near to God, the issue of the, issue of the sins that separated and threatened judgment, they are eternally removed. To take away sins. So so the cross happened long ago, but the Lamb of God is there now. His his work on your behalf is now, right now. It is, I guess, the, the continual fight of faith. If you had been there 
right at the moment of the crucifixion, all right? If you had been blessed with a deeper understanding of the meaning of that atoning event, and then if, if a bleeding Christ had somehow put his hand on your shoulder, and you were right there, and he said to you, never doubt the seriousness of Father God's heart in pardoning your sin. Look at me. All of this you are witnessing is for you. And all of this is enough. Let this moment give you confidence and hope and a grateful heart for divine grace. Let it remove all doubt forever. If that happened to you right at that moment in time and you saw it all, it would be etched in your memory forever. But but we weren't there. There's not one of us who can get to the cross through memory, right? It didn't happen that way for you. It didn't happen that way for me. It didn't happen that way for anyone but for a small handful, perhaps right at that moment. Later, it, it dawned on many more in their hearts. The New Testament rings with the thrill of this redemptive understanding. But we weren't there at all. We never saw it. Probably can't imagine it accurately. Imagining it isn't the essence of faith, so don't worry about that. And so hence, hence the need for gospel faith. We, we constantly draw our minds back to the cross that we never saw physically... We obey our Lord's command and reawaken faith regularly around the Lord's table. We study the gospel as it's revealed in the New Testament. We even take the time, believe it or not, to plow through this complicated letter of Hebrews verse by verse. Why? To understand the sacrifice. To understand the sacrifice. And we do it all, we do it all to remember that this is just as true and just as potent and just as present now as it was at any other moment in history. It hasn't changed now to appear for you before the throne of God. What did you bring to church today? Are you immoral? dishonest? Have you had an abortion? Do you struggle with same-sex attraction? Have you never come to Christ because you feel you're too guilty? Do you feel like you've committed the same sin too many times over and over? This is our hope. That Christ's sacrifice, the power of it, extends far beyond its own moment in time. Now to appear in the presence of God, 24b, on your behalf. He's not there to condemn you. He's there appearing on your behalf. Clothed in his righteousness alone, we used to sing, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. You, you don't, 
hymn writer didn't have the time. You don't have anything else to stand on. The whole world must come to the Father through Christ. And he's there at the throne, inviting all sinners to do so with trust and confidence right now. Let's pray.